you want to be doing what others are not and still in a market you know, segment that has demand. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast, where we create a life of passive income through real estate and doing what we love. In this episode, we have Scott Chopin. He's the founder of Urban Pacific Group and a real estate developer of multi-generational urban housing for families. Today, we will talk about the benefits of his new design that solves the issue for large families in what he considers multi-generational housing. We will also discuss the three pillars of partnering up with a developer and talk about how to move from investing to developing. All this and much more up next. Real estate investing is changing, but there are people evolving and thriving. In this podcast, we'll listen to their stories and hopefully learn from them. I am dedicated to creating a life where I could create multiple passive income and doing something I love along the way. To me, the most important part is doing significant work and create great relationships along the way. For those that want to invest in passive income multifamilies, email me at abio at abiobiestedos.com. My name is Abio Biestedos. I am a real estate investor and entrepreneur, and I want to help you live the real estate life. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. All right, welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. On this podcast, we are dedicated to creating a life of passive income through real estate and doing something that we love along the way. And today we have Scott Choppin. He is founder of Urban Pacific Group. Scott is, has over 35 years of development business. His track record includes over 3,400 units he's developed and has successfully exited over 900 million in sales. Scott, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, great to be here, ABL. Appreciate the invite. Scott, so uh, we're definitely in an environment in real estate where developing has become even more popular than ever. Uh, you know, prices have skyrocketed and I'm seeing a big trend where now it just makes more, a lot more sense to develop than to buy these existing homes because the prices are so high. Is that something that you're starting to see? Yeah. So, you know, as before we were recording, you know, we're, we're not traditionally an investor. We're, you know, solely and exclusively a developer. And we're always tracking those two parts of the marketplace. Like, you know, in the, in the, you know, the way that I think of it is like, you know, in a down market, you know, you'd buy below replacement costs, right? Like you would buy at a discount, an existing asset at a, at a discount to the market value below replacement costs. The development model is the opposite. That's building or buying at above, you know, replacement value, meaning it, it it's more valuable when you finish it than it it was the it cost you to build it. Right. So that's definitely yeah. the market we're in. And then, you know, value add would, would be in a, a range or a spectrum in between those, you know, two extremes, right. Of like discounted to the market and above market. And then it's just a function of how well can you buy the value add asset? And yeah, I, I mean, I talk to investors all the time who are like you sort of like looking at making a move from value add can't find deals that enough deals or deals that are sufficiently profitable enough or both those things. Um, so, you know, moving into the development marketplace makes sense. Um, but you know, the market is cyclical. So, you know, at some point in the future, you know, that will reverse itself again. And, and uh, how did you get into development? So I actually have a family background in it. Um, my dad and, and my uncle Mike were both real estate developers in their own right. So basically, I have a family history of it. And, and you know, sort of, I guess, natural meaning development isn't a career that you'd like wake up one day and go, oh, 
you know, I'm going to be a real estate developer. Like I figured it out. I had the book at the library, how to be a real estate developer. It's such a, (laughs) you know, obscure, I mean, I think real estate investing and and multifamily is obviously a smaller sector of the marketplace, but then development's even a smaller subset of that subset. Um, And so I had the family background um, which gave me, you know, a general like idea and understanding of what real estate developers did. Um, but then, you know, I'll share with you when I was 18, um, didn't really have necessarily a career path picked out at that point in time. Wasn't, you know, ambitious at that point to go to college, ended up working in the construction trades for a couple of years. But during that time period, I was reading as, as I do, as I still do. And I came across a couple of books, you know, basically, you know, just general old school real estate investing books. And those were key for me because that really finally opened up for me what it was to do deals, to be a deal maker and what it meant to do deals. Like you, you know, you buy low and sell high, right? Like classic yeah. old school Perfect. stuff. Yeah. Which and development. Uh, which, which, you know, I actually, I, I, which I, one I, pops I, out? It, it was the the title is how to make a million dollars in real estate investing on the weekends. And actually, I need to go find that book because I because I I talk about it and I go I should revisit it. But it was one of those classic fifties era, you know how to you know I mean today there's so much more ABL oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, YouTube no. and books and we got people on Twitter and LinkedIn right. But back then it was pretty like I mean what you had to find was like I mean there was like you know eight books all, you know, that has existed in the marketplace. But that was really what finally gave me the sense of like, what was the meaning of development? Okay. Yeah. It's build buildings, find land. You know, I knew that part from being around it, but I go, Oh, here's what you could do from a profitability standpoint. Here's how you could be an entrepreneur. Here's how you could use your creativity and, and your ability to innovate and solve problems and make a lot of money doing it. You know, for all for in the sh- in a short you know in the short story about yeah no definitely I I'm, you, you I was going through your website and you have something that really caught my attention and um, the multi generational workforce housing uh, I was trying to understand what you meant by that and of course I started googling now I kind of get a grasp of it but I want to hear from you what what is this multi generational workforce housing that yeah. you talk about on your podcast and on your website. Yeah. So we, so, you know, we've been a apartment developer really for 21 years now. So last this year, March was our 21st year of operations, always focused on urban environments. So wanted to build inside of existing neighborhoods and cities, um, have done various product types. Really the vast majority of the, of our track record is building new apartment buildings, right. As a developer, um, about now going on five or six years ago, uh, we finished a series of buildings and we're really looking for something different to do, right? Like we sense there's a lot of new multifamily coming on the marketplace in this you know, period five or six years ago. And so in my background, I had, had done work in the affordable housing industry, right? Like the government subsidized affordable housing. And from that era, I knew that families were always under a lot of pressure from the incomes that they generated versus the housing costs. And we're in California, which is the most extreme, you know, uh, you know, differential between housing costs and incomes. And so we started to think about this idea of creating a, a housing product that could bridge that gap. So the gap between luxury housing and the cost of that and true affordable, which is government subsidized, but always limited. There's never enough of it, right? And so we started thinking, well, like middle income, workforce housing, working class, maybe blue collar housing. There's different ways to 
to describe it. So we we ended up settling on a particular product type that we invented, which is a five bedroom, four bath rental townhouse. And it's a three story townhouse, five bedrooms, four bathrooms, uh, two car garage. Um, and the thing we really talk about is it's it's built, uh, uh, designed and built to rent, but lives like a house, right? And so we sort of combine several things together. So it's it's uh, giving renters the ability to rent a unit that lives like a house, right? Like which everybody would prefer if they had it as multiple bedrooms and bathrooms, which allows their family to live together under one rooftop, i.e. multi-generational. Um, it's middle income. So it's really fits from a from a cost standpoint, that demographic that sits in between, you know, people that are, you know, subsidized housing and, and the luxury. And so we really refined this, what we call urban townhouse, that's the name we gave it, into this multi-generational, multi-earner, you know, working class housing model. So multi-generational means two, three or more related generations living in one household. Yeah. Yeah. Multi-earner means that they that those households combine incomes and expenses, what I call economic sharing. So they have multiple earners in the household. And so that combination of multi-gen, multi-earner basically has a different model than what you typically read about, right? And you read, you know, in the Wall Street Journal and they're like, oh, a single income, somebody needs to make, you know, X dollars an hour to afford an average unit. And that's true. But what that doesn't, uh, accommodate or what that doesn't calculate is if a family comes together and has four income earners and they decide that it's, you know, good for them or they already, you know, right. live multi-generationally, this gives them a much more powerful capability of living a good life. All we're doing is supplying them this unit type that allows them to do that under one rooftop. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a genius idea. It's, it's, uh, it's actually something that I'm so surprised, um, architects and developers hadn't done in the past. I mean, I grew up in that environment. I grew mm -hmm. up in that environment where converted garages were bedrooms with yeah. wet bars and kitchens and families would get creative and do these things yeah. illegally. Yeah. And by, by the cities and developers pushing this product and allowing it to be done correctly, it'll avoid throughout the years of other families doing this illegally. Yeah. Uh, so that is a, uh, that is a trend. I think, uh, one of the, there's a development here in Miami by Lennar Homes. It's beautiful four bedroom houses. And then it has an in-law quarters mm -hmm. that they're starting to push on the development side, which I had never seen before. Yeah. Um, they're not pushing kitchens. They're putting like this wet bar mm -hmm. about the stovetop. Cause there's some regulations here in Florida where they don't allow that some places. And when I saw that design, I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm Latino, so we've been yeah. doing that forever. Yeah. <laughs> we've been sticking those in-law quarters, uh, you know, everywhere. Uh, That's right. So I'm, it's, it's now to me is genius that, that, that developments are now, you know, embracing that architectural design. And it's a, I, and there's a huge demand for it. And I, and I, and I, I, we're tracking constantly. I, I don't know how much the development marketplaces has really caught up to it. I mean, we do it, you know, Lennar. Actually, we see more, actually, it's, in fact, we, we do a ground floor bedroom bathroom out of the five, four in our units. We always do that ground floor bedroom bathroom as, as a, an acknowledgement of, of the, you know, grandparent or older in-law. And I actually got that idea from uh, some uh, condos that were built here locally in a city called Torrance. And they, ha they all had ground floor bedrooms with a bathroom. 
And I was like, you know, I was like, wow, man, that's like, that's mm-hmm. super smart. And yeah, I was asking yeah. the sales agent, I go, you know, are these your, are these units like, are you, do you have demand for them? Cause it's not typical. She goes, Oh, mm-hmm. this is our best selling unit. Like that's hands incredible. down. If that's you, and trend, then. yeah. So we, so we've adopted several characteristics of it, but I'll, I'll go here with it. Just, just to follow up with what you're saying. Culturally, the world is more doing this than what we do in the United States. Like if you looked at people who live multi-generational around the globe, it would be the more common way that people live both traditionally, historically, and, and today. And that in the United States, even in the you know pre-Civil War era, living multi-generationally was more common. Also, it was only in this sort of you know, night, you know, 20th century, you know, nuclear family era that the United States really got this, like this, that had the economic capability for people to be wage earners and afford to live separate from their family. Like, oh, it's mom and dad and two kids, right? The the classic nuclear family. But in reality, both culturally, that's the norm, but also in today's environment, economics are now requiring that people combine together to afford, right? If, If incomes are flat and housing costs. In fact, there's a graph that looks like this. This is incomes and this is housing. We actually, our housing serves that gap, right? And so the only one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that people do this is by combining this, you know, this economic, you know, these incomes and expenses together. But that's really historically and and culturally across the globe, the norm. It's just the United States is maybe starting to adopt that for, you know, its own reasons. You know, stu- you know, a, a lot of the student housing layouts kind of would work for this model. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, they they have the four bedrooms, the four bathrooms. They're large units. Um, they just uh, does your layout have a separate entrance for that for that unit? Yeah, we haven't done that, um, and and we're really our unit is really meant to build as cost effectively as we can. Yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. development model generally. Um, but we would need some logic. So Lennar has, you know, in fact, they, the, the, the units that I saw, they didn't have a separate entrance, but I'm, my reading suggests that the Lennar model that you saw is more typical yeah, yeah. because what you're getting is you're getting, you know, maybe people who are, you know, born in the United States and, you know, the idea of, you know, living with your mom and dad is sort of like, what, I'm not going to do that. So the idea of having to have these separate, but combined, you know, hey, you can go in and out independently. But, you know, I think most families that live this way, like that's not a necessity. And we've had not really no, you know, it's not been detrimental to us at all in our leasing activities to not have a separate entrance. We certainly could, but by all, for all intents and purposes, because our units on the ground floor, it's the only living space on the ground floor. And you come in the door, you go down a hallway, you go up the stairs and then right beside the stairway up is the, you know, the door into the bedroom bathroom. And then we have the garage on that same floor. So it really is sort of separate in the context of it's, you know, it's the only unit. Now, obviously people coming in and out of the house are going to go by, you know, that bedroom. Um, But we're really not, there's no economic reason for us to have a separate entrance. Like we wouldn't get any more rent. And that's, you know, an economic calculation in Lennar's standpoint, they could probably, you know, get a higher price for having that separate entrance. I would speculate. I don't know for sure, but, you know, there's some economic logic for it. Either if they didn't have it, they couldn't sell the unit or because they have it, they can get, you know, a better sales price because, you know, there's this separate entrances type thing. That economic 
you know, calculus doesn't, you know, enter into, you know, our tenants that live there that won't pay any more rent. What's the ideal square footage on, on that townhouse? Yeah. So what's interesting, it's a great question. So, so traditionally our development projects over the last 21 years were a lot of podium and one-off design. So we would find a site and we do its own, you know, standalone design, never to be repeated. In the UTH model, we went about it in a much more like, you know, we wanted to be production oriented right out of the gate. So what we do is we have, we have two different five bedroom unit types a regular unit, what I call the regular unit, and then what I call the sideways units, just the same unit turned 90 degrees. And really all we do is we basically lay this unit out on a piece of land such that it, that, you know, we use that unit type over and over again. Maybe it's a, you know, it's a three unit building, maybe it's a five unit, 10 unit on bigger projects, but it's the same unit over and over 1,750 square feet five bedroom, four bath, two car garage, three story townhouse. And we really want to do that as much as we can, because basically that allows us to increase efficiency in our construction operations, both in managing the construction and then the build process with the subcontractors. You know, it's the same unit. Again, that production orientation, like a home builder would, right? You just do that unit, same unit over and over again. Yeah. yeah copy How many of these have you developed already, Scott? So we're on our, let's see, last account, we're on our eighth project in the UTH, you know, business plan over that, you know, that five plus year process, you know, period of time. Uh, the f- first four projects were what I call the demonstration phase. So we did small and mid-sized projects really to test the model, right? We wanted to make sure that we didn't get too far ahead of, you know, our capability to execute <laughs> yeah. on the business plan. So we did some small projects and really purposely did them to learn. How could, you know, what does it cost to build it exactly? How much production efficiency can we get? What's the real rent that we can charge, right? Um, What's the real value? I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, five bedroom apartment units are so uncommon that when your appraisal comes in, the appraiser's like, dude, I don't have, there's no comps, (laughs) right? Either in sale or rent. And so we've had to create the market really. So we did this, you know, for the first probably two years, we did this demonstration phase. We've completed that, proved the model. Uh, I think our portfolio returns on sale were about 23% internal rate return to limited partner capital. Nice. So we we proved the model. We learned how to do it. I mean, we're always learning on new projects, so that never stops. But, you know, I wanted to make sure that if the if the experiment failed, right, like UTH or Bentownhouse turned out to be an utter failure, then we go, okay, you know, good. We learned that lesson and moved forward from there. It turned out to be actually, you know, really healthy, a really good business plan. Um, so we're now growing. We're in our production phase and, you know, several more projects into, you know, the, the business plan. In fact, we're, we're right now raising a, a, an equity fund, um, uh, in order to serve basically a series of these UTH projects. Are you, are you staying in California with this or you're thinking about investing in other states? Yeah. So, so we are, we're thinking of, well, we're focused on California. It does work in other metro areas. So this is a product that really needs to be built in, in metro areas. So you can think like Portland, Seattle, Denver, we've looked at all those markets. Uh, the model would work in any of those markets um, you know, if you get outside of a city, you know, metro area, the rents yeah, fall suburbs, off enough yeah. that yeah. it doesn't work. And that's, and that's fine. This, this is a, you know, this is a working class family housing type, which is, you know, where, you know, cities are going to be where those folks are. are I, I like that you, I like that you have the exact clarity of what the product is and where it needs to be. 
uh, you know, a lot of folks sometimes say, oh, you can put this anywhere. Now, you know exactly where it needs to go. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm real effective brokers. I drive them crazy because <laughs> they're like springing me stuff. And I, you know, one of the things is our, our product wants to go in B and C neighborhoods, right? So it's an A product in a B and C neighborhood. So the brokers are always me bringing me like the hottest new thing. And I go, dude, no high-end neighborhoods, no sexy gentrifying neighborhoods. I mean, those are appropriate for a specific demographic, but that's not where families live. That's not where they gravitate. You know, it's higher land costs, more challenging, you know, uh, entitlements, you know, uh, governmental approvals, if you're going to do that part, that kind of yeah, thing. In a class class A neighborhood, I, I could see the challenges you would have with the city to, mm-hmm. and, and, and the current owners in the area. They'll give you such a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's our, our B and C neighbors love what we do. They're like, yeah. great, man, this empty yeah. lot that's been a pain <laughs> in my butt next door yeah. to my property. Great. You're going to develop some new units. In fact, we get neighbors that are like, yeah, can I, when can I apply? <laughs> when do, can do I you move see, in? Do, do you see this being as a, a, a project where someone will say, build me a hundred of these in, or, or you see that being way too challenging? It's more, you of know, a, we're right now are in our production phase and the sizing we're using for the, the capital raiser we're going through with the equity fund, we're between about 20 and, and 85 units is the range. Um, and that's just functionally sort of a mix of uh, land sites that are available, the sort of density that we can get, the geographic area. So partly to answer your question, we're really focused on LA and Orange counties right now. In fact, this first fund that we'll raise will be entirely based, you know, and focused on that area. We certainly think that there's bigger projects, you know, we're going to take bigger projects on. We may phase those. So like we have an 85 unit project as our biggest to date, and that'll be a a 60 unit first phase and a 25 unit second phase. And we're various reasons why we're doing that. But I think once we get into that 85 plus, so we'll definitely be aggressive about phasing it. Um, But two is the density of people in these five bedroom units, as you'd imagine, you know, we get, a, yeah. a lot of people in a space. So I start to think about more and better amenities. So like our 85 unit uh, project, we're, you know, developing a one acre park next door. Actually that we're develop, co-developing with the city and that's, you know, the project will actually have direct accessibility into the park as, as our amenity in essence. And so we'll start to think about more and more of that. Um, but in reality, the, the demand and the need for this sort of middle income housing is so great. Um, is, that we don't see is. any, there's, there's no, no lack of demand going forward, probably at least, you know, two decades out, just given what we produce annually as a state. Um, you know, it's very difficult for us to catch up, probably impossible if you look at it. So we just see, you know, long runway of, you know, need. And, and I, don't, I don't say it's great to have families that need this housing, that's just the reality of it. They yeah, do need this yeah, housing. Yeah. They're here. They're working. They're, they want to get, live a good life. They have their families with them. And so we just say we're being responsive to that particular part of the, you know, the, the demographic and, yeah. and market segment that really everybody else is ignoring. We're happy to be well, here. I like the fact that you're just not doing what everyone else is doing. You know, the, the standard three twos and the four bedrooms or the or there's two bedrooms. So you're finding your own niche. Uh, there's, it's going to, it's going to be consumed. I mean, I I've rented four bedrooms and five bedrooms. The five bedrooms weren't legal in the past. And and we've done a lot of section eight and I can't tell you how many families in section eight would love a product like this. Yeah. Uh, and people would be surprised how section eight probably pays 
market rents for a four, four or five bedroom. They just wouldn't believe it, but it, there is a huge yeah. demand in that sector. Um, yeah, so we see that in California, by the way, that FMRs are like oh, you do? slightly above or equal to market it's rents. Incredible. In many cases. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. The government pays on that. And uh, there's just families with just four or five kids. And that's the kind of, you know. Well, imagine, I mean, you know, you've done this, but here's my observation. Like I, we, we do, we actually section eight, um, uh, you know, we'll have, a, a, you know, five to 10% of our units that pretty much as a standard go to, yeah. you know, affordable housing or section eight. And my mentality is that, like, think of your family of like six people with a voucher, dude, it's like, it's impossible to find housing. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know what it is for you guys, you know, where the markets that you're in, but you know, the turnover rate for new voucher holders in California is like 40 or 50%, meaning 50% of all the vouchers they give to people can never be utilized because they can't find housing to use it for. Wow. And those, wow. you know, and, and probably same as you guys, like, dude, our waiting lists in some cities are like, yeah. you know, deck a 10 year plus yeah. waiting list. Yeah. So we're like, you know, we're like, sheesh, man, we, we, sh we could do all our projects, all Section 8. I mean, we're not going to do that necessarily uh, for various reasons, but, you know, we're super enthusiastic about having, you know, 10 to, you know, 15 to 20% of our units be affordable or yeah, Section 8 the, the, the or accommodation. You're not going to have an issue with the absorption rate. No, <laughs> no, definitely dude, is not going to be your issue. It's like the, the demands even more like in that space, if you're a family, I mean, it's a small yeah. component of Section 8 families, but you know, just, you know, it's families, you know, then some in the Section 8 markets, definitely. I mean, Scott, uh, now um, I mentioned to you before we got on this call, you know, I'm, we're going into the development uh, business also. And uh, we have identified an, a townhouse community that we want to build on. So someone like me, that's, uh, you know, it's it's as an educated investor in, in my own space that wants to take that leap of faith into developing or, or partnering up with a development. What's your advice to someone like me or someone that's in, trying to get into your, the space and partnering up with a developer? Yeah, great question. So I think of this the, this question, ABL, in, in really three, what I call three pillars. And this is... These are pillars or sections of the development and uh, investment space that sort of are, are overlapping and then parts where they don't overlap. First pillar is what you already do in your apartments and what we do is you got to research the market. What are the demand characteristics? You know, where's the market deep? Where is it shallow? Is this a good city? Does there a good job base? Right, Just underwriting the apartment market for demand and rents and, and operating expenses would be in there. So general apartment deal underwriting. So that's pillar one. Pillar two is zoning, new construction design, building a new building, right? All that, you know, this is where the biggest gap is for investors moving into development space. This would be the pillar that they know least, right? You know, uh, if I'm going into a new market, what kind of bedroom count, sh you know, what is the right, but you know, size of unit, right? Uh, in this case, like I had a guy come to me with a deal and I was asking him, I like, what, Hey, how did you come up with that design? It was all two bedrooms. And he goes, well, because you know, everybody else is doing two bedrooms and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, and I said, so you picked your unit type because that's the most of what else is in the market. He's like, yeah, that seems like that's the best. I go, no, that's actually the opposite. You want to, I mean, you can't go too extreme, but sheesh for us, five bedrooms is pretty extreme, right? You want to be doing what others are not and still in a market, you know, segment that has demand, right? So pillar two is building new buildings, government entitlements and that kind of thing, zoning, et cetera. And then the third pillar is basically valuation, right? Like, you know, we're, we're in this business 
to produce profitable projects, either in a refinance scenario for long-term hold, or if we sell the property, you know, we've made a profit for ourselves and investors. So the first and third pillar are common to both development and investing or value add, right? It's that middle pillar where there's usually the least knowledge from somebody who's moving from investing to development. And so there's several ways to go about it. You know, you, you'd mentioned that you, you know, you, the folks you're working with on your team have have experienced themselves. So if somebody is looking to move in development, my advice is always go joint venture with somebody. Like, you know, and, and with the specific request, hey, I have this land deal or I have this deal. Like you guys bring your part, I'll bring my part, we'll come together. And then specifically say, I want to learn. Let me let me go to all the meetings. Let me, you know, be on the phone calls. Let me, you know, sit on your shoulder and, you know, soak it up. Watch what yeah, they be do. Be part of the Ask, process. Be yeah. part of the process, right. Yeah. Read all the documents. Like, hey, why are we doing that? You know, you may drive your partners crazy a little bit, but that's fine. The, you know, if you got good partners, they'd be happy to do it. Um, you know, I have people who regularly intern with us, with our company in Pacific, who want, are looking to move. These are usually younger folks. They want to move from a specific career that they're in into the development space and, you know, people come to me, oh, you know, hey, I want to get this master's degree or I want to go to this college, you know, or even, you know, I'm going to buy the guru courses, you know, although there's not a lot of that for development. I go, come and spend a year with me. Come spend a year with Urban Pacific and our team. And, and you'll learn more than you would ever, you know, know in any classroom, any guru course, any book that you could read. It's, it's all about basically hands-on, you know, problem-solving you know, follow up, you know, how to really project management for lack of a better way to call it. Um, uh, you I know, agree so with that's, you on that. The, the, the yeah, joint perfect. venture part is, is probably the way I've learned most of all my transactions and, and, uh, and exactly how you expressed it. Like if, if you want to get into a business, joint venture is probably one of your best ways and just be part of it. Be part of the whole, the whole process. Yeah. Uh, be copied on every email, ask a yeah. bunch of questions. You, know, you, you don't want to annoy too much, but you know, it's okay. It's all right. If you're putting the deal together and you're raising the capital and you find an amazing, you know, piece of land where you're going to, you know, make things happen. Joint mm -hmm. ventures is the way to go. Now it, it, you know, it's, it's the hardest part I think is finding that, that partner. Yeah. That, uh, it's gotta yeah. be the right person. Cause some developers actually, I would say most, or like, no, dude, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. They don't want to create the competition. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there. I mean, you're like that. I'm like that. And, you know, like I want to find good deals and I want to develop people that are part of my networks and like, hey, look, let me let's work together on this deal. You figure out you see how it works and then let's go. You find more deals so we can create as the developer who has the experience and maybe the capital and the resume and the track record. Like I want to, I want to have ten people that go out and know how to do it. I mean, you know, eventually they're going to go do their own deals. We understand that. But in the meantime, and if I and if I am a good partner to them, I keep bringing me deals oh, more yeah. and more. Yeah. Right? Like you know how to do it now. Like you know how to talk to the city. You know how to ask about zoning. You know how to underwrite the deals. You know, run a pro forma. Bring me a fully formed deal, and then we'll do it together. In fact, I have a guy who who works with us now. He's basically a project manager on our on our team, he came to me through, like he found me on bigger pockets where I've done a lot of writing and, you know, about the development process. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, Hey, I got this deal. And he, in fact, we're about to sell it. And, you know, he's a, he's, you know, he's probably, I, I've never asked how old he is, but he's probably in his early twenties. 
I mean, he's going to make more in this deal than, you know, he's probably ever <laughs> made awesome. in his entire life times a hundred. Um, and and, and I tell you, if, if he's doing the project managing, that is probably the fastest way to learn anything in real estate. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a good dude, but he's getting beat up. You know, it's like, oh, come on, right? Um, but you know, I've worn that hat many times. So that's yeah, how you really exactly. get schooled in this business real yeah, fast. Project and managing. it's the best way to learn. It's hard, you know. Sometimes it sucks. It you go, oh, dude, you know, made the mistake, and you know, like my job is to teach somebody and, and our project management staff, you know, we're always learning, but not, not to make it like a fatal error, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. in the project, yeah. like it dies. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. the balancing act in that, in that process. Scott, we have, a. will I'll leave you with the last question. Um, you know, we have a question we ask all our listeners and I just, it's always interesting to hear what they have to say. And I always just want to ask you, what does financial freedom mean to you? Um, you know, it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, uh, sim simplistically it would be having enough money, right? Now that sounds like a really basic answer, but you know, if you think most people, they don't know what enough is like, what's the actual number that enough you would change. need <laughs> to have to take care of, you know, your future self. Right. So what I do with people, and I've done this with myself, and I'm, you know, an ongoing process, and I and I actually learn with a network of people who who sort of operate this way and think this way, is it's like, what's the number? Like when you turn a, a certain age, you know, pick that age. Is it 45? Is it 60? Is it you know, you know, whatever age you decide that you want to be done, and figure out what you need from an income standpoint when you retire. If that's what you're going to do, or when you want to be at that point where you have financial freedom. So there's really thresholds or levels, right? So enough to take care of your, your basic household, right? Um, that's, you know, that's what I call survival, right? Um, and that's enough where if you have a, a amount of money invested, so where you don't have to draw down your capital, where it's spending off enough, you know, return every year that you could basically live off of it and not have to work. So that's, you know, survival. And then there's basically what I call freedom, which is a larger number, which is basically you can live with really no constraints. You're not living a luxury lifestyle, but if you decide you want to buy a new car or you want to take that trip or you want to, you know, buy a house for your kids or you want to, you know, pay for that, you know, big wedding for, you know, your, your son or daughter, like you're not constrained that way, right? You're not, you know, you're not eating caviar for breakfast and living on the super yacht but you don't have any real constraints. So those two thresholds is really where I, where I sort of operate is, you know, first take care of your survival. And, and I don't give a number because everybody's number is different, right? If yeah, you're 20 and you're starting, well, then you have a long runway to, to invest and compound, but you also have the most inflation to deal with. Um, somebody like me, you know, I'm not at the end of my career, but I probably have, you know, eight to 10 years in my timeline where I want to finish and, really not have to worry about it anymore. Um, and really it's not only to take care of your life now, but it's also to take care of your, you know, your future self, right? So right. we're living longer than we ever have, right? We're, you know, people, what was it? Somebody shared an article um, that uh, they did a study in Japan and there's a book and I, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, may, may have actually been called the China diet, which is the, the name of the book. But basically they did a research study in Japan that 
people now in Japan, and this is true for other economies, but Japan seems to be yeah. sort of the most uh, aggressive and like accelerating yeah, this way. Lives, yeah. They're like at 75, they're living more like people that were 45 and 50, like, you know, two or three decades ago, yeah. like the health is much better. The longevity is longer. They're living a much higher quality life. And so yeah. that's great. You go, Oh, that's fantastic. But then you got to think about, okay, now my retirement money, my investment, my capital work needs to last for you know 20 or 40 years yeah. after you retire right and yeah. a lot of people don't think about that they're you know they're hustling and they're like more 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 right and there's nothing wrong with hustle i mean i'm i'm yeah. right with anybody but you got to start to think about what's a specific number how much time do i have left what's the, what's the income i want to have when i retire and how long does that need to last in retirement yeah, right I agree. there's something that you mentioned about longevity and it's an interesting subject because it kind of correlates with the product that you're building um, when they did this study of uh, longevity throughout um, different parts of the of the world, actually, uh, there was I think there was uh, it was in Italy. There was an island off Italy that had a bunch of centennials in China and Japan, and there was one common thing all these centennials had was that they all had a purpose and they were living with their families. Mm -hmm. They weren't yeah. in a home. They weren't in an institution. They were living still at home. Yeah, taking care of their grandchildren. They'd had a purpose. Yeah. which is what your five bedroom product uh, gives people gives a purpose for the grandparents to stay at home yeah. and the kids to live longer. So yeah. these cultures around the world have figured out, you know, this is what causes longevity. And, uh, and there's something about our housing in the United States that doesn't provide that. So what you're doing in the future and creating that, I think that people open up that, you know, it is okay to have the, you know, even though it's rough sometimes, but it's okay for the, the grandmas to live over and the grandchildren to stay over. You know, longevity yeah. is longer. And also for yeah. middle and long term families, the poverty rates in multi-generational families is vastly lower. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, like significantly, like, you know, yeah. you know, dozens of percentage points lower. Yeah. That's correct. a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, that, uh, that advice. It was not as simple, but it was very easy to understand. I appreciate <laughs> okay, that. Scott. Good, good, good. <laughs> I, I work to make it easy yeah, to yeah, understand, yeah, not, yeah. but it's not simple. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I mean, some, someone just gives me sometimes a straight answer, but you really went into depth and it made a lot of sense. All and right, I appreciate good. your time, Scott. Scott, how can a listener get in touch with you? So uh, a couple ways. So if people want to go to our website, it's www.urbanpacific.com. Uh, we have a full investor education section talks a lot about this difference between development and investment, but from an investor standpoint, um, where there's a red sign up button on every page, uh, hit that, uh, get on our email list. And we put out a curated email every Saturday. That's sort of a curation of all the reading that we're doing, you know, all the different market trends, economic cycles, real estate trends, you know, some of these demographic things we've mentioned, other, you know, sort of cutting edge type things. And we put that out every Saturday. And then if people want to find me, uh, I'm on Twitter. Actually, it's, you know, it's probably my most active social media. Uh, so it's at Scott Chopin on Twitter. Um, so find us any of those places. All right, Scott, thank you for your time, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Live podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, please go to my website, www.abliesteros.com.